Hello, and welcome back to the Public Health Ivy podcast. Hope you're having a great time of day and in the most comfortable space while listening in. On this episode of Beyond the Ribbon series, I had the pleasure of chatting with Jamila Kaur. Jamila is a two-year breast cancer survivor that started her treatment at the height of the pandemic. Listen in as she talks about her acceptance of her new body image, self-advocacy, and life as a survivor in a pandemic. Days off for like four years. You know what? That is definitely something that we have to start including in these job requirements. I need... Listen, my roommate, her job did longer days, Monday through Thursday. So every Friday they were off. And I was like, that's brilliant. That is, you know (laughs) what? Are they hiring? Because that is something that is absolutely, definitely should be applied. That four-day work week, I'm all for it. I'm for it. By the time I lay down Friday and recover on Saturday, it's back to planning on Sunday. It's never enough. It's never enough, never enough. But we're here now and we're getting ready for our Mondays. So we made it, we made it. Well, it's nice to meet you. Nice Nice to meet you as well, yes. Um, So like I mentioned in my email that this was just something that I wanted to do. Um, I recently graduated with my public health degree um, as a health educator. Thank you. in health education and then I have a background in health sciences so I was like okay let's how can we put this together and that's awesome something forward um so it just started with me like posting like you know just little things on wellness and health and what this actually means for us as the whole person Mm -hmm. um and as October inch to inch closer I'm like well that's breast cancer awareness month and that's usually a big deal for the world Mm -hmm. but outside of October they don't really understand um I didn't (laughs) right and I think it usually hits home for a lot of us of course when we see someone going through it or we end up going through it ourselves Mm -hmm. um And a lot of the conversation when we talk about like prevention and preventative measures around it is, you know, know yourself, do yourself tests and mammograms. And within our community, the African-American community, it's hitting us before we get to 40. So if we're talking about mammograms at 40, and that's like the biggest preventative measure that we have, um, we're leaving a huge chunk of people out. Um, Absolutely. So I definitely wanted to have a platform and a conversation for people, you know, that those who know that we're at a higher risk, whether it was from mom or aunt, or they've already undergone genetic testing, um, those who are currently, you know, fighting and surviving and thriving, especially in a pandemic playing uh-huh. that none of us would have ever dreamt up in our wildest imaginations. Um, just so that you know you guys can have you know an opportunity to actually share your stories and share your pieces um because I think that helps in the grand scheme of things when we're talking about like prevention and Mm -hmm. what it really looks like um when we can actually put a name to the face in the story and it's like oh okay well I never would have thought this you know kind of yeah 
No, it's it's interesting that you say that because it was it's been two years. It was two years since I went in to get checked on Friday, and it'll be two years since I was diagnosed next Friday. And my first question before even the diagnosis, the minute the doctor said, hey, this is something you need to look closer into, I text all of my girlfriends and said, wait a minute, did I miss the group chat where we talked about mammograms and stuff? Have any of you ever done this before? And, you know, the couple trickled in. One person said yes, because I had a family history and everybody else's response was, well, I think we start that at 40 and I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. So no, not yet. Don't know much about it. Cool. And um, for me, the one, another twist to my story was that most people associate breast cancer with lumps. I never had a lump. That wasn't what made me go to the doctor, actually. Um, it, well, I used to think it was TMI, but now that I've been through so much treatment, it's not. So I had like a teardrop size dot of blood on my nipple. And that's what made me go to the doctor. And when I Googled it, it said, you know, you could have gotten an infection or something. Either way, it was weird science. I always call it weird science. But I didn't immediately think, oh, breast cancer, go get a mammogram. Um, so it actually took a little bit for me to actually report it to the doctor. And the first doctor I went to said, oh, you know, it's not normal, but it's not probably nothing too bad. Just whenever you go for your annual checkup with your gyno, mention it. And I was like, all right, well, cool. If he's not tripping, I'm not tripping. Um, but then a month later, I was sick again, totally unrelated. And I was like, well, since I'm here at the doctor, let me mention it. Um, and she was like, yeah, you definitely need to get that checked. Um, but again, the few of my girlfriends that I reached out to, none of us considered this a sign. None of us had any clue. Um, and especially for Black women, when I started Googling, one of the things I noticed in the stories that we share, there's usually a beginning part where, oh, no, it was unexpected. A middle part where it's like, oh, you know, treatment was so bad. And then the finish of, well, now we celebrate Breast Cancer Awareness Month and we honor this person. But the details of what they went through and how they got there aren't really present, not right. for black women. Right. Um, I, I searched desperately to find people that look like me. And our stories were not there. Our celebrations were there. Absolutely but not the actual story. So I think this is awesome. Thank you. Um, can I ask you what age that was when you were diagnosed and what stage? Sure, I was 34 and initially I was diagnosed as stage zero, which means that the cancer is contained. Mm -hmm. um, my cancer was found in the milk ducts of my breast. Um, so stage zero means it hasn't broken through anywhere. Um, it was stage zero and it was supposed to be two millimeters. Right before surgery, my, I scheduled to have a lumpectomy. Right before surgery, they did an MRI and realized that it wasn't two millimeters, it was 10 centimeters. Um, it went from the tip of my nipple to my chest wall. Um, so that upgraded it to stage one. And then when I actually had surgery, I had a, a mastectomy. Uh, they removed a couple of lymph nodes just to double check and see if there was any cancer. And there was, I had micrometastases to two lymph nodes. So initially it was stage zero. I, my final official diagnosis, I think was stage 1A um, breast cancer. So another thing that tripped me out was like, you know, it sounded like, oh, early detection. You know, that should mean that this process is going to be a little less intense. And it was not, you know, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to take away from anybody else's experience, but finding it early still meant an intensive, aggressive course 
absolutely of of treatment however um one of the things i've also learned is that when it comes to early detection i think one of the reasons it hits black women harder is that we don't know any of the signs besides alone yeah. um, most of the women i've talked to even friends who get early screenings um everybody kind of knows this thing about dense breasts but it also involves some self-advocacy if it's mm -hmm. not Oh, uh, overly apparent to you, doctors have a tendency to overlook it as well. Don't assume just because they have the MD that they are as versed um, in, or well-versed in breast cancer. If you think something's wrong, follow up. Absolutely. If the doctor discourages you and you still think something's off, follow up. I'm, I'm beginning to see that there's not a whole lot of urgency when it comes to concerns uh, regarding breast cancer in young people. A lot of doctors also assume that you're, if you're under 40, it's probably not cancer, which is false, <laughs> which is false. Right? There's even um, some, some studies that suggest one of the reasons it's more deadly in Black women is that it, we have it for longer before we notice that that's what it is. Not necessarily that it's more aggressive, just that by the time we actually get a diagnosis and start treatment, we're much further down the road. Absolutely. Um, and all of that is absolutely correct, especially when you uh, realize that all of the research around breast cancer um, and mostly medical, you know, any health ailment um, within the medical field is centered around the white female and the white male. So we're getting lost in all of that and we're being placed against these markers of, right. okay, the average age of a mammogram because it's starting to present at 40 is that of a white woman, right? Excuse me, not that of the 30 to 32 year old black woman that like you said, they're feeling for this lump and they're like, oh, I don't feel anything. Right. And in me knowing my body, I just know, you know, I just have denser tissue. This doesn't feel right. like anything out of the ordinary. Right. And then at 34, 35, they go into the doctor and they're saying something's not right, but I just don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. They've been living with it for two to three years, exactly. unbeknownst to them. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, um, that's definitely something that I think we all need to like broaden that conversation around. Um, and you mentioned self-advocacy. Um, and that's, I think, one of the harder things as a patient going in as a patient. Um, I think me having the training, you know, around health education, that's like one of our hugest goals in, you know, at teaching that self-advocacy to a patient. Like if you feel something, say something, if you notice something that's out of the ordinary. Um, but even with me having that formal training, I find myself that it's still hard for me um, to go into the doctor and say, hey, I noticed like I've had this thing and it's not going away. Um, and I think that also comes along with, especially us as black women, we feel in a lot of spaces, even outside of healthcare, we feel that if we speak up, it's the way that we're going to be looked at and the right. way that we're going to be received. Um, is there anything that you experienced, you know, from your care team that you felt like gave you that hard time uh, to have that self-advocacy in yourself that kind of made you think like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have said something or maybe Absolutely. I should have said something sooner? 
So it's funny, the twist, um, I I'm definitely that person that's always uncomfortable. Uh, so my initial uh, attempt to tell the doctor, like I said, he just kind of brushed it off and said, oh, well, you know, go tell somebody else whenever that comes up. And I said, okay. And then the second time I went, that doctor definitely was much more attentive. And I said, okay, I did the right thing by, by following up. So already the gears in my brain started to turn. It's like, you know, you're at a certain age where these things are a little bit more critical. Uh, I think that was the beginning of my awareness of choosing a doctor or a care team just in general that you feel comfortable with. If you don't think that you're talking to somebody that is professional enough not to judge you or dismiss your concerns, that's not the right physician for you and it's okay to choose somebody else so that that's the first part of it true true self-advocacy came in the strangest way um once i was diagnosed and they told me what my surgery plan was going to be they said you know you're going to lose your breast um and your nipple and don't ask why that was so critical for me it wasn't even the breast it was the loss of my nipple so i was freaking out and the doctor I chose, actually, her specialty was in sparing that part of you. And so the fact that she did not offer that to me, I was devastated. Like, oh, this is so bad. This is worse than I thought, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I went on Instagram and I wrote this post about how devastating this was for me and how my feelings were hurt and, you know, just got it all out. Well, I had found my doctor, um, who was at an amazing institution out here, on Instagram and followed her. So a couple of weeks later, I had a follow-up appointment. And she, she, among other things, sits down and she goes, I want you to know, um, well, I don't know if you know this, I follow you on Instagram. And I said, okay, where is this going? And now I'm going through my head thinking, well, what the hell did I post last night? Right. <laughs> like, did I go out last night? What exactly. Like, what did she see that she, she that stood out to her? And she goes, I read your post. Um, I read your post about what this surgery meant to you. And I have to tell you, I didn't realize how much it meant to you. And she said, I don't know if you know this or not, but I specialize in the surgery that does what you want. And in my head, I'm like, absolutely, I know. <laughs> That's why I wanted to. I researched it, man. Right. That's why I came to you. But yeah. She goes, well, I didn't know that it was important to you. She said, some people come in and they just don't care. They just want you to take everything and be done with it. And she said, so sometimes that gets overlooked. Um, she said, I can do that for you. She said, I absolutely can give you that option. I just didn't realize that it mattered to you. And I was like, well, thank God for Instagram. <laughs> because I wouldn't have had the nerve to sit here and tell you how important this is because I'm assuming, I'm assuming that you would offer this um, and understand that it was important to me. So that was a huge game changer for me because had I not spoken up directly or indirectly, I wouldn't have gotten what I truly wanted out of my health care. I wouldn't have gotten what I truly wanted in the situation. So from then on, I didn't hesitate to speak up about anything. Um, you know, it's kind of aggressive when you're diagnosed. Everybody's coming at you with all this information and all the things you have to do. So you really don't feel a sense of power. It's the most vulnerable, powerless sensation I could, I could ever imagine. Um, so the idea that at any point I could speak up and say, actually, no, that's not something I want. Or, hey, this is something I want. And it was curious at the end of it all, um, 
you know, we were celebrating the success of the surgery. She said, you know, it's crazy how many times I go to conferences and women don't have a clue that this is an option. And I said, that's absurd. And she goes, yeah, you know, it's been around for a few years now, but even other medical professionals aren't aware that this is an option. And I was like, that's, I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that people are out here. I mean, this is life-changing and you are supposedly providing people with options, but you aren't even aware of all the options in your field. Um, I think if more people realize that, they do the research, you know, you make an assumption about your doctor being the expert, but after that initial experience, I researched, researched everything. And I tried to, initially I didn't want to talk to anybody, anybody outside of my bubble, I don't want to talk to you because I'm going through it right now. Um, and I feel vulnerable, but that switched for me because I realized, well, somebody out there has the information and not, there's no singular person with all the answers. So if it's not sitting right with me, keep asking, keep talking, keep asking. Um, and I've learned so much and benefited so much from it. It's one of the reasons that I was really excited about you doing something like this, because most of the information, the best information I found has come from people sharing their stories mm -hmm. um, and explaining what they've been through, the good and the bad, because certain things you'd be like, oh my God, it's just me. You know, why is this weird twist happening? And it's not just you. Or I've heard people express guilt about what they're going through. Like, oh, I got this scar and I had to do this. And, it, you know, am I being ungrateful that I feel this way? No, you're not. And that wasn't a silly question. You know, find another doctor, follow up with somebody else and see if they can help you with that. Um, Self-advocacy was not my strong point before. I don't like to go against the system. But I truly, truly was empowered by the fact that I could truly pour my heart out. I did. I poured it out all over Instagram. And the doctor heard me. The doctor heard me. I'd never, until this diagnosis, been in a situation where it was that crucial for somebody to hear me and understand me. Um, but I, I haven't lost it. From then on, I, I had a, my first they give you a surgical oncologist to begin with then a plastic surgeon and then when you're done with that you go to a medical oncologist the person who decides whether you need chemo or future medicines and all of that i got rid of my first oncologist um because she didn't give me confidence and i felt really guilty because she was the only black woman that has been a part of any of my my care from beginning to end. And I almost wrote her a letter because I felt so guilty. Um, I was so mad after our first encounter, I immediately called the hospital and every other doctor involved. And I said, I want somebody else. Get me somebody else immediately. Um, and then I thought, you know, maybe I should write her a letter. She was a younger black woman. And I said, well, maybe I should write her a letter. And eventually I did. I don't know if she ever got it because I wanted her to know what freaked me out. What scared me um, in meeting her was that she was very dry. The rest of my team was very, what made me feel good about them was that it was so comprehensive. Each one of them had the other person's phone number. So if I had a question about how this was going to impact something else, they'd shoot a text. Um, if I was worried about the ability to pay for something, if they didn't know the answer, they had they had the social worker on call or this person, you know, like everybody was tied in. When I went to go like a team. Yes, they were 100% a team. Um, 
when I got to my oncologist, she was just like, so tell me what's going on. Um, you know, what you know so far? And I said, well, this, this, and this. And she said, okay, well, what about chemo? And at this stage, I didn't know I needed chemo. I said, well, I talked to the rest of the team and they seemed to think that it wasn't necessary, that they'd, be ra they'd rather I not do chemo and just have another surgery. And she said, huh. I don't know that I agree with that, but I can ask my supervisor. And I said, I'm sorry, it's been three weeks. What do you mean? You're not sure? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, if you can tell me why I need it, why do you think that? And she goes, well, you know, I think with the numbers, but I'm not sure. I'll check with my supervisor. And I said, oh, hell, I need the supervisor as my doctor. Then don't come to me. Wrestling. <laughs> She's going down this long list. She immediately said, again, I hate this question. They did this to me twice out of the gate. Within 10 minutes of sitting down, she goes, well, I think you need chemo. Do you have kids and do you want kids? And I was like, oh God, I didn't come here again prepared to answer that question. And they actually did that at my first um, first visit with the surgical oncologist. Within 10 minutes, the two questions they asked me were, if I had kids and did I want them? And did I want to keep my breasts or lose them both or, or take them both off? And I said, well, oh my God, I don't even know what stage my cancer is. Right, and we're already going to the furthest extremes. So can I, and I remember feeling guilty for at saying, can I ask for some more information? You know, I didn't really realize I was supposed to come here prepared to answer that day. And everyone can say, oh yeah, the sure. Um, and they said, well, some people just come in knowing. And so I repeatedly have to say, I'm not that person. Right. I need as much information from you as possible. These are really heavy questions. Um, so by the time I got to the oncologist again, the young black woman, um, I thought I had cleared most of these things. You know, we were past the conversation about kids because I didn't think I needed chemo. Um, so she was, first of all, the shock of someone telling you you need chemo when you thought you didn't is huge. But then she didn't seem sure about it. Um, and so then she goes, well, chemo has to start within 90 days of surgery. You're already at day 60. Um, so we don't have a whole lot of time. How long do you need if you want to start fertility treatments? And I said, well, they said about a month. And she looked at the calendar. She goes, oh, do you think you have time to call them today? I said, it's 445. Uh, no. And she goes, huh? Okay. Well, again, I'll talk to my supervisor. And I remember I started crying. And my first thought was I should have never come here by myself. And then my second thought was I need a different doctor. I need somebody who's sure because you can't ask me to go on this road with your uncertainty. Um, and so I did. I put that in a note to her. I don't think she's still at the hospital, which is really unfortunate because I'm sure she is a brilliant doctor. Right. Uh, but one of the parts about advocating for yourself is finding somebody who is sure of themselves and sure of the work that they are doing. There are no certainties in this, but somebody who feels that they're well-versed in what's going on and can stand by the information they're giving you is important. If they can't explain it, I wouldn't go for it. Um, every doctor that I had along the way, because I am this person, was able to give me like a 10-page report <laughs> on the work they had done and why they were exactly it is you're getting yourself into into and why they were the ones best suited to do it not one person on my care team was unable to provide me with this if i asked um and even when i pushed back they said well i mean you don't have to if you don't want to and i said or they said you could ask somebody else and i said it's not about trying to find somebody that's saying what i want them to say i just want the person who can explain to me with certainty on their end why they think 
I should do these things. This is huge for me. This is not a, I don't get a redo on these things once we're there. So I need you to be clear and demonstrate to me that you have a broad knowledge of this subject. And that's why you're recommending it for me, not just because you Googled it. And because a lot of cancer treatment is statistics. You start to feel like a number. Well, you're a black woman, so you fall in this section. And then because of your age, you're in this section. That's nothing, the crazy part to me is it has nothing to do with you as the individual in that regard. Um, you never discuss how exactly or why exactly you got cancer. Um, the why you got it is a non-factor in all the treatment for the most part. They might say, did you have, were you exposed to radiation? Um, I did do genetic testing, but there's not a lot of time spent there. The energy goes into your chances of reoccurrence, not um, what you did to get here. So your number, your number, statistically speaking, um, you know, if you do radiation, you reduce your chances by 10 to 15%. If you do chemo, um, you'll reduce it by another 10%. Because that was one of the things, and I'm still not sure. Um, they tell you, when they say you need to do chemo, it sounds like it's life or death. But in reality, for me anyway, it was, what are the chances of this coming back? And they said, well, you have, and I don't, don't quote me on this because I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like, well, you know, there is a 30% 30, 30 chance that this could come back um, if you do nothing, but you drop it down to like maybe a 15 to 20% if you do. And it was like, ah, how much do I need that extra 10%? <laughs> right, to really put my body through all of this for 10%. For 10%. I mean, yeah. it can still come back if I do this. Um, so I struggled with that. I went back and forth, but I think at the end of the day, I decided peace of mind for me said that I needed to be able to say I did everything I could. Um, if you told me that there was a chance that this could help and I wouldn't have to do this again, come on, let's do it. Um, I have, I've met other people who said, absolutely not. Um, you know, I did what I had to do. I don't want to take the chance. I played by the numbers. Some people go with their guts. I played by the numbers. Um, but again, I had doctors that were there to kind of navigate that for me and explain. If you can't explain it to me, I need a different doctor. <laughs> That's the biggest part for me in self-advocacy is that I need to understand it. If you can't explain it to me and I can't find the information, there's nothing we can do. I need to move on until I get to somebody who can don't do things without understanding them. Um, trust your doctor if you don't feel that sense of faith in your doctor um or that they have your best interest at heart i really found doctors who um whether they meant it or not <laughs> made me feel like they knew me mm -hmm. um i have i'm in a two or three different support groups for women with breast cancer and i have the luxury of living in dc there's plenty of black women that look like me um, and doctors frequently see women that look like me, um, for the most part, but there are definitely parts of this country where we are fewer in number and some of the stories I've heard or things I've seen, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, I wish I had a million dollars so that I could fly you out. I'm not saying that, you know, I got the, the best healthcare in the whole world, but I got pretty great healthcare and what you're being, being, um, stuck with is ridiculous right and people truly feeling bad like oh you know i just i still people have shown their scars of like the outcomes of surgery 
man, like, you know, I know that I should be grateful that I'm alive, but, you know, is it, is, am I wrong for feeling some sort of way that this is how I was left? And it's like, absolutely not. Right. Absolutely not. Um, but yet, especially Black women, we feel guilty. Um, I know I did for even feeling the aesthetics of it. You know, most of the stuff we've learned to hide, people buy us wigs or we buy wigs and the hair and the makeup, but the things that other people can't see on a regular basis, it's like we try to hide it and we suffer with it. We suffer with that secret of, I feel, um, I feel less than, you know, you're losing so much of you. People focus on the things they can see, but people don't see your scars from surgery for the most part. Um, and so it, we don't really deal with it. I, I've been telling people in my support group recently, um, if I had to do it again, when you're diagnosed beyond just your treatment, they ask you if you're lucky, um, if you want a social worker and if you'd like to be referred for mental health services. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I remember thinking, I don't want to talk to any more strangers than I have to. You all have already signed me up for the next six appointments. Um, you know, I've whipped my boobs out for more strangers than I care to. Um, we're not on the beach in Ibiza. So <laughs> I've, I've, I've made my quota of, of people that I'm talking to about this. I've got good family and friends. Um, but now looking back on it, I'm like, no, this was a whole amputation. I lost a whole part of my body um and didn't talk to anybody <laughs> about it and i was like that's kind of crazy you know if we were having legs chopped off or arms chopped off absolutely you'd be in some sort of um therapy for, for the emotional and uh emotional recovery but that's not for breast cancer it's optional um breasts are not treated the same way as other limbs are it's and I mean, I get it. My dad said the same thing. He was like, I was like Dad, I'm going to lose my breasts. I don't even have kids yet. And he was like, it didn't, don't even start it when I was already losing the breasts. So I was like, I don't want to lose my nipple. It's just going to be like a Barbie boob on one side. And he was like, it's just a boob. He was like, if it was me, if somebody told me I had cancer and I could solve it by just cutting off a boob, he was like, I let it go. I let it go. And I was like, but you're a man, that's why. And you know, so many, so much of this process, I'm like, men designed this. Men have designed the infrastructure on how we do this because this is definitely not sensitive to a woman's body or a woman's needs. Even the post, um, the post treatment for, so my breast cancer was hormone positive. My estrogen and progesterone were feeding my cancer. So for the next five to 10 years, I basically have to be put in chemical menopause. And the first thing that hit me were the hot flashes. And I was like, oh my God, who does this? And you know, I was going through treatment in the summertime and I'm like, there's no way. I was like five to 10 years of this. I said, and I'm like, I'm doing it early anyway. Exactly. And I was like, oh no, a man came up with this. There's no way a woman was like, yes, this is the end of the line. This is the treatment that women need to be on. This is suffering. And I mean, there's other things that go with it, but I was just like, you know, for these to be the for the science of it to stop here, you know, yep, just chop it off. And I get that it's definitely less brutal than it used to be. Um, but still the fact that it's just like, oh, celebrate the fact that you didn't die, you mutilated, but we still, we put a pink ribbon on it and we celebrate. 
I think I'm, it's funny to see people say it now. At my initial diagnosis and all the things that they were describing to me, I was like, oh, hell no, I hate pink. I was like, there's nothing pink about this. I remember telling my coworker that. I was like, I don't damn uh, breast cancer awareness. So I was like, with the pink ribbons and the pink stuff, because there's nothing pink about this. Wear my combat boots and army fatigues. <laughs> this is a war. This is nuts. Um, but I was lucky. I had amazing friends, amazing family. Um, and I try as much as I can to pass on that level of support and care because it there's science has gotten us so far, like we are long distance away from where we were a couple of decades ago. But as far as truly treating the whole human and not just the the illness, we are still light years away. Um, and that's truly what I see in um, within the circle of breast cancer survivors is this awareness and uh, I guess the beginning of dialogue, the opening of dialogue to, to admit that just because they say, hey, you know, there's no evidence of disease, it doesn't stop there. Majority of people who've been treated for cancer are still on medications, are still within some spectrum of time that says that they should be worried that it's coming back. Um, and how to handle that, how to handle that. Um, I think the lesser known part about the whole experience is that for a lot of people, once you get out of treatment, so I did right before the pandemic. So I was diagnosed in October 2019. I had a mastectomy at the end of January, 2020. Um, by March, not by March, in March of 2020, as things were starting to close, I did a month of fertility treatments um, to freeze my eggs. And then in April, 2020, I, I started chemo for 12 weeks. Um, so April to June, I was in chemo. The world was shut down. I always joked that I got lucky. I didn't want people to see me bald and I didn't want the world to go have fun without me. And so God shut the world down and made everybody stay home while I was going through treatment. Um, and then August of 2020, I had a second surgery to try to clear up that margin. Um, well, at the end of surgery, you know, in August, I was so excited. You know, I could finally say that I was cancer free. And then by September, I hit a depression. I was the saddest I had been throughout the whole journey. And I knew I was depressed because it didn't correlate to the logic. I should have been at the happiest moment, but I was so sad. And I was like, nope, I know this isn't right. Um, but then I started to find people who also agreed that when you are diagnosed, you go into a state of shock. The world tells you you're so strong, you know, you're fighting you're this. But mentally, you are in a state of shock. You're on autopilot. You don't really have a time, a chance to think about what's happening. Because if you don't act, you're going to die. It's either don't act and die or keep it moving. And so you go, 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 go. When it all finally stops is when it hits you. And um, you finally have time to process. And you process everything that you've gone through, not to mention what the world looks like for you now. Um, I still struggle with that. You're never going to be the person that you were before you had it. Um, there aren't enough surgeries in the world to put you back um, or enough memory loss to take away all of the, the things you've been through. And that's hard. That realization is hard. And because you're cancer free at that point, 
that's when the support stops. Everybody remembers you in October for October awareness, like, oh, my friend had cancer. But the rest of the year, it's just you alone with your thoughts. If you alone at the doctor's appointments, it's you alone picking up the prescriptions. And that's that can be tough. Um, same thing with buying clothes. Your clothes don't fit the way they used to anymore. Or when your friend says, hey, I'm going to a pool party and you're yeah. stuck trying to figure it out. Those are the things that will trigger you. Um, but the rest of the world has moved on from what you're going through. Um, so I definitely... October awareness when she, it, I think it is also mental illness, mental health it is. Or, or mental it health. Is. Yes. It, it, God does that for a reason. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, and, and you notice the things that like overlap and it's like, Hmm, he's trying to tell us something, but mm-hmm. okay. I'm gonna let y'all put those dots together. Um, so that is definitely mental, that mental health component is something that definitely, um, is lacking. I think it's growing. Social media has been clearly in my own journey has been tremendous, but in every one of my support groups, people talk about the essential tool that it's become in finding both community and information. Um, I know I, in my darkest moments, I was up at three o'clock in the morning finding people. Um, and the, what support for me looked like was, a, I think I found two or three other black women across the country who happened to be starting chemo at the same time as me. And so we would check in with each other, um, and say, Hey, you know, I'm trying this today. Like, you know, did you eat before you went to chemo or did you drink a green smoothie? Oh, I took a green smoothie. Okay. Well, I was eating ginger afterwards. Like we exchanged information that way. And that was huge. That was that social media has changed the game in the way we can support each other through all sorts of illnesses um, and spread information. Definitely in the younger community. When you're talking about cancer and people under 40, social media, I think, is the new wave of information. I was never as active on social media until my diagnosis. And thank God, at first I thought I was oversharing, but thank God I did because the people who helped me the most in terms of information and support specifically geared to cancer for people that found me on social media. For sure, for sure. I have not yet gone into a therapist, an official therapist um, about it all, but I have found so much support. Shoot, there's even a couple of people I've met that live in the UK um, who check in and say, well, you know, I've gone to acupuncture for this or whatever. I have found community and therapy um, amongst those people. And I'm still finding them. I'm still finding them. But I think what I noticed at the beginning of the journey was how many times um, young and old within the Black community, there's not much about the journey itself. It's just the celebration of life. And I think that is something that carries over into other aspects of our culture as Black Americans. We Our celebrations are big, but we hold tight the story of our struggle. Um, which, you know, there are reasons that we do that, but it me, I think too often it makes us feel like we have to reinvent the wheel. Everybody's starting from the beginning on their struggle where, you know, we could have really shared those tools. If we shared the story, the next person wouldn't have to start at the beginning. Absolutely. 
of figuring it out. Um, and so that's something that's definitely important to me. I'm always texting. I feel like I need, I wear it on my forehead that I had breast cancer, but it's really because I was in shock. Just like, what do you know? Did you know? Did you go to get a mammogram? Do you know these, like what happens here? And even the way the doctors talk to me, you know, the questions they asked, did you want to, were you going to have both removed just one? And I'm like, does everybody in the world know about this except for <laughs> and you wanted to share the wealth because yes. you like you got it let me give it out to other people everybody because i wouldn't i if one or two three just a couple people um walk into a situation like this better prepared than me then you know that's for me that's that's better than what the world was before or even any of my friends um things like genetic testing just so many phases of this um, and it, some of it actually carry, carries over to just healthcare in general. Um, one of, another issue for me was health insurance. I've always been the type of person that chose the cheapest. What was it? The, whatever was going to take the least amount out of my check. I want to see my money. Money. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I'm young enough. I don't have chronic conditions so I can get away with it. And it just so happened right before I, um, I found out I had breast cancer shortly after my one year wedding anniversary. And I had switched over to my husband's insurance who he was wiser than me and had the Cadillac of insurance <laughs> right. coverages, um, which was so perfectly timed because every step of the way, all I hear is more money, more money. You said, I need what? More money more money. And they kind of ask you, they, every now and then they work in the conversation. They say, yeah, we're going to recommend this. Do you have insurance? Which insurance do you have? And in my head, I'm like, I hope the one that covers what you're about to say, because I know it's expensive. Um, but that's another conversation that, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I know in my friendship circle, we talk about a lot of things. We've never talked about the fine print. And our the fine print of adulthood, right? Exactly. Exactly. We don't talk about those things. Um, Another thing that came to mind was I was fortunate that I was married in that there was somebody else here um, to help me and be around. But I was like, dang, just a couple of years ago, I was a single woman. <laughs> what would I have done? You know, who would be responsible for me? Or you're not responsible for me, but you know, who would I rely on? And so within my friendship circle, some of us are married, some are not, but I think it made us all more aware of checking in on each other and support each other through these things. You know, if somebody's got to go to an appointment that makes them uncomfortable, I'll go with you. Just tell me what time it is. Um, but establish, having those conversations so that everybody has a sense of support. Um, my girls all showed up to the hospital for my surgery. They asked if I was in a sorority because we were so deep. And it was like, no, they just know I'm freaking out. <laughs> and no, no, we just good friends. That's all. Exactly. They're amazing people. Um, but it's made me more vigilant and more conscious now. Like if one of my friends says, hey, you know, I'm worried about such and such. I'm like, cool, what time is the appointment? I can come with you. You want to pick you up afterwards. Be there for people because that's another thing that um, I think discourages people from going to get treatment or going to seek help. It's just the fear, the fear of even walking into those doors. Um, but it, if more of us acknowledge that we had those fears, it'd be easier for someone to say, oh, okay, I'll go with you. You know, I'll pick you up. Are you good? Um, definite. And like it all back to mental health. 
it's scary. One of the, another reason I'm convinced that a reason that certain things hit our community so hard is that we don't tell each other when we're afraid. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of our, what's killing us could probably be prevented in some regard is if, if we could say, hey, I need to get this done or get this looked at and I don't want to go, could you, will you hold my hand? And it's interesting that you bring that up because I was having a conversation with a friend um, just last night and we were talking about how the tagline of where our ancestors' wildest dreams has been going around for the past mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, and sometimes that's just as simple as they knew that they were hurting. They knew that they were emotionally hurting, mentally hurting but they didn't have the resources like we have the resources to seek out, um, to say out loud, like, hey, this hurts. And mm -hmm. no, I am depressed, but depressed on me doesn't look like what you think depressed looks, looks like. like. Mm -hmm. um, and that in and of itself is living out that dream. dream. Um, and it may not seem like it to us because it feels like, failure because we're so conditioned to failure within our own culture and you know um you don't speak up about those kind of things because they get to talking about you and they this that and the third um but it truly is a success and like you mentioned if we don't own that and we don't speak it out loud we're doing the same thing that they've done for so many years and we're not helping you know the next niece and cousin and children of our own um, if we don't vocally say it out loud. Uh, yeah, and that's a lot to unpack and yeah. to assume responsibility for it. I already have to assume responsibility for myself <laughs> and we're assuming responsibility for the before and the after to get myself right first. Yeah. I, always, I look at it as um, there's already a connection there. Right. I think a lot of times, especially American culture makes us feel like we're these islands unto ourselves and there's an optional bridge to other people. I don't think those bridges are optional. It's whether or not we choose to acknowledge them. None of us exist without our exist without a relationship to the world around us. Um, and I just I my perspective on it is that in using your words and communicating these things, you strengthen your ability to get help as well as that other person's. It's a two-way street. Um, I I am not the type of person to be able to say, hey, I will maybe I am now, but historically in my life I'm not the person who says, hey, I need help or hey, it's not okay, I just silently freak out. Um, but I got to a stage in life where the people around me were close enough to see it and they could say it for me. And I was like, oh, okay. I didn't have to say thank you. And in return, it made me more observant of the way they moved and the things they need. So it wasn't about having to ask. It became a very natural response. Um, to just how my community that you know my sense of family and family it, in your 30s your friends are your family as well some of them you're closer to than your own so just the way your family moves and what's needed um i it made me intentional about using words communicating your health care needs as well as your emotional needs 
people aren't mind readers my doctors weren't mind readers it wasn't until i used my words that somebody understood what was important to me and what wasn't um and same is true for communicating with your family and friends about health issues and life in general use your words you can't assume that other people understand what's important to you or what's going on and so i mean i don't think you have to tell people write not people novels and books about what's going on right attempt to use your words to explain um i assumed my doctors were going to know that my breasts are important to me and no i don't want to just chop them off just because like i I need specifics, but they didn't. They didn't. I needed to use my words um, and they're professionals. Same thing with friends and family. Um, I, my dad is my go-to on emotional things because I can be as strange as I want and he'll get it. It won't cause him to say, you know what? I think you need to go to a mental hospital. He'll say, I heard you. Did you get it out your system? Cool, move forward. Um, and as I've grown, my circle has come to do the same thing. They understand the difference between a real crisis and what's just me processing. And I think we all need that. I think there's a sense of we need to retreat from the world to heal. And that's true. Spaces, space is fine. Um, but being able to articulate, hey, I need space is also an important thing. Don't just disappear. It's okay to tell people, not today, not right now. Um, or, hey, I need you today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Either way. Uh, I agree. I agree with you. Um, because like you said, as an American and, you know, American society says, when you are going through something, you retreat and you do that alone. Oh. Um, and what I've also heard from, you know, your story is when you were presented the information of here's surgery, here's chemo, and this is what we're going to go with. Mm -hmm. um, that sense of femininity, your sense of womanhood was wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. um, and the processing of that, from what I'm hearing, is you wanted to process that alone. Mm -hmm. You wanted to process that alone, but you also didn't know how to communicate that within your community and your sense of community because you for yourself, you did not understand it. Um, and you're still, or in that moment, it was okay. The way that I wake up and look at myself every day is about to change. And everybody is still, like you said, once everything is done and you're cancer free, you ring the bell, I've changed physically, emotionally, mentally. Um, and I don't know how to process that within a group just yet. I'm still processing that for myself. Um, and I'm sure that's a, you know, journey and a whole, I don't want to say struggle, but a whole journey, I guess journey is the better word, um, in itself. So what does that feel like now, you know, a year and a half, two years post. Um, um, so I started where I am right now. I went back to, because of COVID, I was able to work from home from March of 2020 until June of this year. And when I got to work, one of the greatest pleasures um, that I felt was that for the first time in over a year, 
people recognized me and they smiled. My hair had grown back enough for me to do a little bit with it. Um, I was in real, real clothes. I was in my professional clothes um, and people spoke to me and smiled. Now going backwards, one of the most painful parts about the change. So when I had surgery, I had, I went, I got, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I got an implant put in immediately. So I still woke up with two boobs, which was major for me mentally. Um, I refused to look at the scars, but I was aware that at least in a shirt to the rest of the world, things look somewhat normal. Um, fast forward to chemo, my hair, I've always had long hair. That's one of the things like people identify me with. So this thought that I was about to lose my hair was devastating. Um, and I cut it short to be cute. And I was like, okay, I can rock this. But when it started to fall out for real, I mean, I bawled. It was falling out a little bit here, a little bit there, but then I finally got patches. And I looked at my husband and I just bawled out crying. And I was like, it's happening to me. And he shaved my head. And I was like, I don't know this person. Like, this is for real. This is happening publicly, publicly. And I remember I, I said that to myself a lot. I said, I can't even hide what's happening right now. The world can see it. Um, someone gave me a tip before I lost my hair and told me that I should practice drawing on my eyebrows. They said, you know, most people think chemo and the first thing they think about is the hair on top of your head. But she said, it's the front facing. Yes. She was like a bald head could just be an edgy look. It's the lack of eyebrows that's going to make people think you're sick. And I heard her and I was like, okay. And I still couldn't get it. I've never been real good with it. She was right. It was the loss of my eyebrows that would freak people out. And what was devastating for me, honestly, was the fact that especially when we, because we had to start wearing masks, people did not recognize me. People that live, I live in an apartment building, neighbors that I pass all the time did not smile at me, did not say hello to me. Um, little kids that I know in my building didn't want to look up at me. Um, and that was hard. That was hard. I am the, I smile at everybody. I say good morning to everybody that passes by me. And the idea that people would not say it back to me crushed me. There was so many times when I do something simple, like run to the pharmacy and come home and the amount of people that turned their head or didn't want to speak. And I mean, like, granted it was COVID, but I mean, I could tell it was the fact that I look sick that was freaking them out. I was like, I can't help it. I can't help it. And I come home and just cry. Um, that that was most of the year. You know, I, I still say I'm grateful in a weird way for COVID because I didn't have to do that every day. I didn't have to go out into the world and feel ignored or not seen. Um, I was in the house. But... Um, the few times that I did try to go do things, I was aware of trying to put on a stupid wig that I don't know how to glue down to look normal. Um, weight gain that comes from the meds and stuff. Like I, my, I am a whole different person from who I was before. And I struggle with that daily of trying to figure out what this new body is all about. Um, I, I don't, I try not to say it has limitations. It has kinks that I'm still trying to figure out. Right. How to work with. 
and deal with. Um, and for a while, I, I did almost give up. When I first started chemo, my husband used to go on bike rides with me. We go for like 30 mile bike rides, but it got to a point where it was too hard for me. Um, and that kind of, that gate, that actually put a rift in our relationship because I couldn't keep up with the things that we used to do. And then it got to the point where I was like, I'll never be able to do this again. You know, what if I can't do this again? And that took me to a deeper level of depression. Like I said, that whole phase right after you finish treatment, where it was just like, what does the rest of my life look like? My fear was that I would never get to do the things that I did before. Um, I certainly won't ever look exactly like I looked before. Um, but I was like, well, my eyebrows come back. Is my hair ever going to come fully back? I look tired all the time. Um, I couldn't, I still can't get both arms above my head, but I was like, can I ever just reach up for something by myself again? The little things. Um, but I can say that now it's, August was a year since my last surgery. A lot of the things I feared that I couldn't do have come back. Um, my mobility's there. I can finally start working out. I think a lot of these sites say that, you know, like a couple of weeks after surgery, you can do, mm -mm. No, it took, I'll do it. <laughs> it took a year for my body to truly heal and in, in, in be okay. Um, and I'm, I'm having to figure it out. I'm having to figure out, I, I think I was just saying this to somebody else, that I've always, how you perceive yourself isn't necessarily how the rest of the world perceives you, but I've always been athletic and held on to that. Like there was something I knew about myself. I had long hair and I could play sports. And cancer took both of those things away from me. Well, temporarily anyway. Um, and now I'm trying to figure out, I'm in a process where I'm like, all right, listen, it's different. I've never had to work as hard as I do now to do mm -hmm. these things. Um, I took for granted the relative ease that I could step on a court or just play, just play things, you know? Um, I wasn't the person that had to train so hard to make the team before, you know, I've never worried about getting cut from a team. Now I'm at the bottom. I'm at the bottom. I am the person that's going to have to train before I make the team and making that switch mentally. It's a new level of grit. You know, they talk about grit being an essential part of greatness, you know, because that's what puts you through. Well, apparently I lacked a lot of it. <laughs> I lacked a because lot of it. Because you never had to develop that, right? That, that was not one of my muscles that I have ever had to really flex like that before. So I am mentally in the process of flexing muscles that I didn't even know I had, didn't even think I'd need to flex in my 30s. I thought I was done with learning new things. I thought I was all about building the things I knew to be true about myself. Um, and patience. You know, there's definitely tons of moments where I see somebody who is the size I used to be and I roll my eyes like, don't be such a hater. I like, I'm like, I was cute. I was cute once. I can do that once. And I say that to my, and I'm like, oh, you sound so old. Um, you sound old and bitter. And a part of me is like, I am. I am bitter, but it's okay because I'll get back there. You know, I've mixed it with a lot of self-talk. A lot of where I am right now is um, reclaiming my mental space. It's not even the physical. Like, I, I'm getting there, but a large part of it is telling myself to go try it, to not talk myself out of it and be like, you can't do that anymore. It's like, no, you may not be where you were, but still go try it, go do it, go for a run. No, it's probably not gonna be as long as it used to be, but still try it anyway. Um, 
we got to get ourselves back to thinking we can do things as opposed to no cancer took this away um and learning to just be positive in this space i feel like other people do it so much better it bounced back so much better i look at people who hooked it up with the lashes and they, i mean they're still in chemo and i'm like i don't look like that now <laughs> you look healthier than me <laughs> you're out um but breast cancer taught me to have a lot of patience and grace with myself um written grace are probably the two things that i i took away most from the breast cancer journey was having to push through things that you would absolutely opt out of every other day of the week um i kept i remember saying to myself and all the breast cancer stories and just all of the stories of illness that you see on TV and in the media, I think in the back of my head, I don't know how I thought they got through it. It was just kind of like, oh, well, you know, they managed it. It couldn't be that bad, I guess, in my head. And I don't know, I wasn't intentional about reducing people's stories, but I just assumed they knew more or had some sort of preparation or divine intervention. I don't know how I thought people got through illness before. And so I always tell my friends now, I'm like, no, there is no epiphany that happens where you're cool with what's happening. You know, there's no grace that comes over that just says, no, yes, you know, it's gonna all be okay. No, I said, you're freaking out every step of the way. There's not one time <laughs> where somebody says to you that you're gonna inject yourself with poison for 12 weeks and you're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> that sounds easy. That sounds yeah, fun and doable. Yeah, yeah not, a, not at all. Um, and so there is a certain little grit that says, all right, we got to keep going. I hated doctors. I hate going to the doctor. I am the cliche person who doesn't go when they're supposed to. It was divine luck that I went to the doctor this time around. Um, to get, Actually, part of that story is that on my anniversary, um, my husband hurt himself. He hurt his foot. And not only did he hurt his foot, my car got stolen. And I have a 10 year old stepdaughter. So in the midst, my anniversary, September 1st, after he got hurt, my car got stolen. I had to take care of him and figure out how to get her to and from school and get to work. There was so much going on that what I had been putting off for months um, in terms of going to the doctor, I was like, I gotta go. I gotta go because I can't afford to get sick and not be able to do these things for him or her. And even after I went to the first doctor and he dismissed me, would encourage me to go back, was like, I can't afford for something to be wrong with me right now. My husband's not okay. And there's a 10 year old here. And that's what made me go. It wasn't because I was so proactive and like, oh yeah, you know, I need to get every little thing checked out. That wasn't me. Had he not been injured, I wouldn't have gone to the doctor. You thought about how other factors of your life like mm -hmm. factored into everything else. It's like, cause like you said, I can't afford to get sick right now because I have to maintain for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and I realize now how important it is to change that philosophy. I tease my dad is 70. Oh, he's over 75. I'll leave it at that. He's over 75 and he goes to the doctor for everything. He's the health, one of the healthiest 75 year olds I ever met, but it's because everything 
that he thinks might be wrong, he gets checked out and doesn't sweat it. And it's like, oh my goodness, you go for everything. And he teases me because I'm always on Google trying to fix it myself. But now I'm officially at the point where I'm like, nope, if I think something's wrong, just go, just go. And I'm always telling my friends, they're like, oh, well, this happened. I don't know if I want to go to the doctor. I'm like, just go, just go, because it could be worse. It could get worse if you don't go and you don't want the worst to happen. Or in one of my friends' cases, she um, she does go get mammograms. She's my only friend that gets mammograms because she has a family history of it. Um, and they also told her she had dyspress. But because she's been getting mammograms, um, recently they saw something on a mammogram that they were able to compare because she goes so often. And luckily, fortunately, you know, praise God, she's still fine, but she will continue to have this record of things that they can reference in the future. That's huge. That's huge for us um as black women because one of the again one of the problems is that if something does occur there's no context we weren't going we don't know if this was sudden or slow growing we don't know if we can attribute it to something we recently did or a place we recently were or if it was something else because we don't have a baseline go to the doctor read the fine print on your insurance and, and schedule your routine appointments. That is the number one thing. If I could tell the world for Breast Cancer Awareness Month is go do those things. Well, you answered my next question right there because my next question was going to be what message would you give um, to the community at large outside of October? Because like you mentioned earlier, October is this whole pomp and circumstance. And yes, let's praise the survivor and praise those who are going through it. But outside of October, there's a lot that gets ignored or just lost in the sauce. Um, so that was definitely my next question to you is what message would you give to those outside of October and how can they help 365 more days, you know, 365 days a year? Um, or what is it that they should know um, throughout the year? Get to the doctor, schedule your routine appointments. Um, I would I would like to live in a world where we taught younger women about how to check breast health and what to be aware of. Um, and again, most of these things apply to medicine in general. There's so many conversations that we don't have specifically when it comes to um, women's health because it's a very intimate discussion. But there are things that in information that we should be passing on to young women so that I think would impact our ability um, to deal with the rising cancer rates at younger ages. We don't know where to start. When you find out you have cancer under 40, you don't really have a starting ground. There's no circle or pool of people that you can reach out to and there's no context. Um, but so much of, of healthcare within the black community is that way. That's the same thing with men and prostate exams. Um, we don't have the conversation with young people. So then it's a weird taboo space to be in as you get older, because who can you trust to have that conversation with since it's not an open dialogue? Um, we also don't encourage people to read the fine print on their health insurance. Um, a lot of people, I know in my age group, I'm 36 now, but even younger, insurance was something option that we considered optional. Like I said, can we afford to have it come out of our check? What's the lowest rate we could pay without really taking into consideration what it looks like when you need it? Um, or 
what it looks like trying to get it when you're already sick. Um, those are two of the things or early aware, early discussion of typical health issues for men and women and an awareness of the need for health insurance. Those are two things that I wish the world would take more time and interest in this month in 365. Breast cancer, it's funny, so many things throughout breast cancer treatment you find are truly universal things. Uh, I was focused on what I needed to be eating. Just about everything I needed to be eating and doing is the same thing that every healthy person should be eating and doing. The remedy was no was no different. Short of the medicines, the specific medicines I had to take, everything that I was supposed to do, get out of the house and walk 30 minutes a day. We all needed to be, need to be moving 30 minutes a day. Um, eating a diverse, uh, lean meal. Literally, universal things that we all should be doing. There was no separate protocol for breast cancer. Um, all of us need to be living more intentionally healthy lives um, with a long-term game plan. That's, that, that is my message. I mean, I, I continue to beat this into all of my friends that I can. Um, Brandon and I have had discussions about this. Um, literally everybody I love and care about, take away the taboo of discussing health-related issues within families. Take it away from your friendship circle. Don't hesitate to say, you know, I don't know all the months of the year, what every different month is for cancer, but don't hesitate to text your friends and say, did you go get your prostate exam? You know, don't hesitate to tell your friends, hey, did you go get that mammogram? We could go together if you want to. Um, things like that, that's, that's the world that I would like to live in. I think a lot of lives would be saved if we started with simple things like that. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for sharing your story with me and sharing your time with me. Thank you for having um, me. Absolutely. So um, I'm very, you know, excited about our conversation and hopefully where this leads because um, it's small, but I do believe it's mighty. So I'm excited to see where all of this goes. Um, and just like with the other women that I've already spoke with, you know, I really just want to get that out um, because it can help someone. And I feel like that's the bigger picture uh, that, like you said, we all should be focused on, like who we can help um, just by sharing what we felt, what felt good, what didn't feel good. And just, you know, strengthen that community, especially for us as black women to see you definitely will. You definitely will. Um, there's not enough, not enough avenues like this out there. What you're doing is really groundbreaking. Um, and there are definitely women past, uh, past, present, and future who will look for the work that you're doing right now and be so grateful that it exists because there aren't really many spaces like that. So thank you so much for creating something like this. Mm -hmm. I hope you enjoyed that honest conversation of transition and acceptance between Jamila and I. A dear friend to us both connected us, and I'm so glad he did. B, I still don't like you, so if you're listening, still don't like you. <laughs> but until next time, y'all.